Welcome to Health Law Talk, presented by Shahardi Sherman-Williams. Health law broken down through expert discussion, real client issues, and real life experiences. Breaking barriers to understanding complex healthcare issues is our job. And good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the show. Again, Conrad Meyer here, Fred Shahardi Sherman-Williams for another edition of Health Law Talk. And just as the title suggests, today we're going to be talking about some very interesting situations happening in Louisiana. And we sort of touched on this a little bit a while ago. Uh, it's the public emergency order that deals with immunity provisions to providers in states of public emergencies. And in today, we have two very special guests in the studio today, uh, Bobby Marlboro, who is a prominent healthcare attorney, and another uh, another attorney, prominent healthcare attorney on the plaintiff's side, Carrie Wicker. Gentlemen, how are you? Fine, Conrad. Fine, Fine Conrad. Thank you. Yeah, that's great. We have two guys who do this consistently and who are involved with this kind of work consistently. And I guess the first question I think listeners ought to know, because this really affects the citizens of Louisiana, and and, and, and I did a program on this back in the summer, but I think it's really good to hear from uh, from uh, from the plaintiff's side how they feel about this. About this. What is this public emergency order, uh, Bobby, if you can take that? What, what's, what, is, what does this deal with? What's the story here? Well, the real story is back on March the 11th, 2020, when the governor issued the uh, emergency order, it really affects all malpractice victims in the state of Louisiana from this perspective. When uh, a malpractice act occurred prior to the implementation of the order, the standard of care that a plaintiff had to prove or a victim of malpractice had to prove was the regular standard of care. Number one, we had to prove what the standard of care was, that there was a breach of the standard of care, and that breach caused injury to the plaintiff. Mm -hmm. Subsequent to the implementation of the order under the Public Health Emergency Act, now we have to prove gross negligence or willful neglect. Right. That's a burden that's almost number one, impossible to prove, and number two, we feel that it's unconstitutional. And so when you, when you talk about that, the, the burden of proof, just because I know some people might not understand that, so, to, so it, prior to the, this a public emergency order, when you say that you had to prove a breach of the standard of care, so c- can you elaborate, what, what do you mean by that? What, what, kind of, what is the burden there at that level? And then what, what, and some people might not understand what gross negligence is. What, in your opinion, what is the difference between the two? Well, first thing we had to prove before the implementation of the state of emergency, the Public Health Emergency Act went into effect, we had to prove what the standard of care was, mm-hmm. depending on a particular case. For example, um, if we were dealing with an anesthesia case, for example, we had to prove what the standard of care was depending on what the injury was. For example, if we're talking about the administration of propofol, we had to establish what the proper dosing would be for that particular patient. Then we had to prove if there was an excess amount of dosage, we had to prove that there was too much that right. was provided. Right. Now we have to prove in that two-year period of time that the governor's mandate was in effect. Mm -hmm. We have to prove not only that there was a breach of the standard of care, but that that anesthesiologist or whomever administered the medication 
was grossly negligent or willfully, willfully neglectful. There's one problem. Mm-hmm. Under the Medical Malpractice Act, it only says that we have to prove negligence. It doesn't say we have to prove gross negligence because it's not defined under what we call the LMMA, Louisiana Medical Malpractice Act. That gets into a whole different discussion that probably in and of itself would take us an hour to explain. Right. So we don't know, and we're going to get into this in a minute, I'm sure, and Carrie and I can both discuss it, what we have to prove before panels and what we have to prove to juries, because it's never been decided at this point yet until, and we're going to get it decided soon. We don't know what we have to prove. Right. I have a split decision that I recently received where the panel found that a physician breached the standard of care, but of course, there was no gross negligence, and we can discuss that in a minute. So the simple answer is this. We have to prove now, during the two-year period of time, that this was in effect, and that is a long period and, and, of time. And for the record, just so our listeners know, so what you're saying is when, when, the, when COVID hit, the governor issued this public emergency order, and that tagged this language that, that we're talking about today about the immunity for providers from civil actions unless it's willful or gross negligence, correct? Under 29771, revised statute 29, colon 771, we now have to prove Gross negligence or willful neglect. For that, can, for that two-year period of time, because it sunsetted, I think, in March of this year, correct? That is correct. Okay. It, it was actually two years and I think a week it right. was in effect. That had all sorts of effect on malpractice victims and attorneys handling those on both sides of the aisle. Right. Um, and we could discuss opinions from both sides, and I'm sure we will. The problem with that statute, Mm -hmm. 29771, is what's the definition of gross negligence? We've had cases, and I'm sure Kerry has also. Nobody knows what the definition is. There are, I've had doctors ask, what is the definition? We don't know what it is. There are at least five or six different definitions for gross negligence, and I can tell you, nobody wants, no physician sitting on a panel wants to find another physician grossly negligent, and there are several reasons, and I'll give you just a handful. Number one, if you find a physician grossly negligent, there's a good chance that that physician could lose his position in a hospital. Right. Number two, he could probably lose his coverage because his coverage may have, his insurance coverage, may have an exclusion for gross negligence. Under the state act, the state act versus a private insurance carrier, specifically has an exclusion for a grossly negligent act, which takes it completely out of the realm of coverage. So there's a myriad of problems that are brought up by 29771. They clearly were not thought of when this special legislation that we think and this predated COVID. I mean, this goes back. This what? goes back to two thousand three, right? I mean, so we're not talking something that was enacted because of COVID. No, this was. This goes back to two thousand three, and I and I think I understand why this was done. It, it this really is is an offshoot of federal legislation when when the the, the towers were hit in in New York mm-hmm. and they wanted protection for first responders who went in and were doing their jobs and we get that we understand that and the bill that was attempted to be 
introduced in Baton Rouge recently was an offshoot of, of giving people protection who were in the trenches, and we can talk about that in a minute. Sure. But the problem is, is, is that we're not looking to take away that protection from those people that are in the trenches and dealing with people who dealt daily with COVID people. Mm-hmm. But that's the misinformation. And I, and I think, and let me just on. let me just interject. And you're talking about right now because I don't I want our listeners to be aware of a, of a recent legislative House bill, right? That was introduced in this session, Senate Bill 346. A Senate bill it was in the Senate, so it was. It, what's, what was the bill number? Senate Bill 346. And, and that bill was going to amend this public emergency order and change the language so that that. And what was it going to do? Can you, can you elaborate yeah, on that? It's simple. Senate Bill 346 was going to amend the bill and... Amend the statute. Amend the statute, rather, and still provide protection for those physicians or healthcare providers, Mm -hmm. first responders and whatnot, who were dealing with patients that were COVID-related or or providing medical care or medical assistance for COVID-related incidents. For mm-hmm. example, if, if you're treating someone in a hospital as a hospitalist that had COVID-related issues, you would still be provided protection under the statute. But if you're doing an elective procedure, such as rhinoplasty, breatharoplasty, giving, providing uh, an OBGYN, giving birth, uh, assisting in a birth or a delivery, elective back surgery or something like that, why should that physician be given blanket immunity. It makes no sense. Mm-hmm. It logically makes no sense. And we always use the argument that a physician, any physician, driving to a hospital to go treat a patient for an elective procedure could theoretically make the argument that he's immune if he causes a wreck. I mean, that argument theoretically could be made by a smart attorney because he's going to render assistance to someone at a hospital. Right. I mean, that argument. And so the argument was, was that's not really what the, the bill was in, or the, 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 the current law was intended to do. Carrie, well, let me ask you this. What, sure. are you, what are your thoughts? Because you know, one thing, and I hear what Bobby's saying. I get it. And I, and I understand his point, but let me just throw this out at you, right, Carrie? Because and, and I think you and I have had this discussion before, but let's just say we use the language of the proposed bill, right, in changing the statute. And what is, what's to stop the hospital, for example, or the provider from arguing that everything is, like, we use COVID, everything's related to COVID. In other words, I can't do, like, to Bobby's point, the rhinoplasty because I don't have the supplies in the hospital because of COVID. I can't give birth to the, 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 we can't do a proper C-section, for example. I have to wait because we don't have enough staff because we have too many people out because of COVID. Uh, and, you know, what are your thoughts on, on this whole thing? Well, first of all, uh, Bobby's correct about the genesis of this legislation. Actually, it goes back to 9-11. Right. And it was to protect first responders. And I think the bill, uh, the legislation that stemmed therefrom was well-intended. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, as in many legislative efforts, the problem is not the intended consequences, it's the unintended consequences. I hear that word a lot. <laughs> and and, and that, that, is, that is the very, very problem with this case. Right. Listen, the bottom line is that there is no rationale. 
There's no justification to effectively immunize a physician from liability mm-hmm. who's delivering a baby, who's, who's doing a spine surgery when COVID has no relationship whatsoever to that particular patient. The, are, the problem, I have clients that sit across my desk mm-hmm. and I have the unfortunate task of having to say to them, well, because even though you didn't have COVID, even though none of the treatment you were rendered in any way directly or indirectly related to COVID, mm-hmm. because you happen to fall in that window, because you happen to fall in that time since March of 2020 when the governor declared the declaration of medical emergency, mm-hmm. you have basically drawn a bad card because the doctor is effectively immunized unless we can prove gross negligence. And I, and I want to follow up on the gross negligence thing, basically just so your audience will understand right. what, what we're talking about. And he's correct. There's nothing certainly in the medical malpractice statute which defines gross negligence. There's really nothing in the law that defines gross negligence in this context whatsoever. But the bottom line is what you're almost faced with having to prove as a practitioner representing an injured victim, patient, Mm -hmm. is intent. You're almost faced with showing that a doctor or a healthcare provider did something intentionally to hurt someone. Well, then, if, it, they, if, they, if taking that point, if that's the case, then it's not covered under the act. That's exactly right. So, so that's another unintended consequence? Exactly. <laughs> and, and, and listen, I have represented injured, injured patients for 40 years. I have never, ever believed in my entire career that any healthcare provider did anything to intentionally hurt someone. I would never make that allegation. There have been cases reported nationally where that was the case, but those right. are very, very, very rare. So, so I guess let me ask you this, and both of y'all, to both of you, uh, and 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 let me, I don't want to finish your point, Carrie. But could general negligence also be considered gross negligence? Could 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 that argument be made? Or no, I see no. Bobby shaking his head. No. no. So it has. So definitely a higher burden, right? Yes. Higher burden. Yes. And and, and let me say this to you too. The Louisiana Health Emergency Powers Act was modeled after the State Emergency Health Powers Act, which right. was passed after 9-11. And that act limits itself, limits its applicability to cases where the person who is being immunized effectively only relates to cases where they're treating people with, with, with that malady. In this case, it would be covid Right. So, so even though our statute is allegedly modeled after the modeled after the Model State Act, it goes our, further. It than goes that. much, much further than that. And and I, I'm going to tell you, there there is there are a lot of people that really do not understand this, and I happen to be in that number. I don't understand this. I don't believe, and I and I and I don't mind saying this. Uh-huh. I don't believe that um, anybody with a modicum, a modicum of intellectual honesty could think that this this bill read and as broadly as it has been read has any basis whatsoever to both of you have you had clients during this public emergency act that you've had to tell I'm sorry I'm sorry for your loss I'm sorry for what happened to you but I can't take your case because of the because of the uh, the statute have both of y'all had that many I've had too many um and, and for both of us, well, I can only speak for myself, but right. Ker- Kerry and I talk all the time. We do. Um, 
that there's a small number of people that want to handle medical malpractice to begin with. It, it's a very difficult practice, and it's a very expensive practice. Um, but I have increased the number of people that I have told that to probably two or threefold since mm-hmm. March 11th um, of 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, but to add one thing that Kerry said, sure. it, it so eloquently pointed out, if we have to prove willful neglect, mm-hmm. That's a criminal act. That's how willful neglect is defined. And so again, another unintended. So now we're looking at potential criminal charges if what you're saying is true, and the DA would get involved, I guess, and, and if they decided to ever do that. And and I I have never I have heard that there's one mm-hmm. case out of Texas, Doctor Death. That oh yeah, everybody knows. That, everybody knows that case. Okay, right. that's willful neglect. Right. I've never had a case of willful neglect. Nor have I. Okay. And it took, let me tell you, that's a very, if you haven't listened to that, I've mentioned that. To, I mean, I, I teach health law at Loyola and at UNO, and I mentioned to my students all the time. That's a, a podcast that's, that, that they're willing, uh, and even a TV show, the first, first series on Dr. Death. Very interesting. But that's willful neglect. It but, is. But that's in the statute. The statute, right. 29771, mm-hmm. says that we have to prove either gross negligence or willful neglect. Now, I guess in a minute we're going to get into why we think this statute is unconstitutional under Article 3, Section 12, A, 3, and 7. I think it's clearly unconstitutional. I think the legislature clearly overstepped its bounds. And and I'm going to attribute this statute to just the lobbying effort that goes on in Baton Rouge. And I'm going to tell you, Conrad, I've been knowing you. You and I have had cases together. We have. Um, we've had some really big cases together. Mm-hmm. And and I'd like to consider myself an honest man, and I know you are, and you're a good lawyer. But what I see going on in Baton Rouge, to me, I spent two, two I made two trips to Baton Rouge, and I don't care to ever go up there again, because I've heard some things that were just, frankly, dishonest. Well, tell, well let's talk about that. Let's, let's kind of segue into that now. I know you went in front of the committee on this bill, on this Senate bill. And then, so tell me, tell me a little bit about that. Tell Carrie and I what happened. Well, I'm not going to use any names. Okay. okay. Right. Fair enough. What, what happens at, if, if your listeners have never been to Baton Rouge. Well, tell you know what? They've given up the process. What happens? And how well, does this whole genesis start to, this, to change the statute? This is how this happens. Senate Bill 346 was brought up before committee the GUDA committee, and there are seven senators that sit on that committee. Okay. And this bill is introduced by one of the senators in that committee. Okay. And the bill is discussed, and there are people for it and against it, and those people get to fill out a card, and they get to present why they're for it and why they're against it. To the committee. To the committee. So we had lawyers and then we had victims of malpractice present their case to the committee. Um, so a couple of notable people, mm-hmm. uh, one case that's presently before the Supreme Court, Kathleen Welch was up there. Uh, that's a current case before the Supreme Court. Uh, my client, um, Naomi uh, Davis, mm-hmm. which is a case that I just filed in um, St. Mary Parish this week, that's going to test the constitutionality of 29771. 
But the process is these people testify, and then those opponents of the bill, who were lawyers, and then some doctors got to testify. Mm-hmm. And that's where I almost lost it. Uh, very passionate about what I do, as is Kerry. I think my temper is a little bit greater than his. <laughs> <I think. laughs> on, a, on a given day, maybe. Maybe not. <laughs> I had to get up and walk out of the room because the reason being is that most of these doctors, physicians who testified, were hospitalists. We're not talk. this bill that we're introducing, Senate Bill 346, doesn't talk about, we're not looking to take their immunity away. Those are the people that would still be protected under the bill. Those are the people that were dealing with COVID on a daily basis. Yet, they sat there in front of this committee, in front of a room full of people, and literally made the statement that what you promised us, the protection that you promised us, now you want to take away. I'm sorry, that was a lie. That was an untruth. And it's just so wrong. Right. And look, let me just say this. We're not here to for or against. I'm, we're just fact gathering. So this the, the show is not promoting or, or, or opposing the bill. We're just gathering information. But I understand, and you're very passionate, Bobby. I, I see that. I, I am. And so when you heard that, I'm sure it moved you, and, and, and I could see why you had to walk out. It moved me out of the room right. because I just <laughs> I, I couldn't. It was either that or I was going to shout out. Well, I'm glad you didn't do that. <laughs> so I just got up and moved out of the room because that was an untruth. Right. If you're going to, because you, you theoretically, you take an oath if you're going to testify before this committee. Mm-hmm. So in my mind, you need to be speaking the truth. So, so when you go in front of the committee, you have the, the fours and the againsts, and then they hear the testimony, and then they vote, Correct. And then and the, and the, if, it, if it passes, it goes out of the committee onto the Senate floor. Is that right? That is correct. Then it goes to the House floor. If, this, if the full floor approves, it goes to the House, and then same process. And then if they approve, it goes to the governor, correct? That's correct. Okay. And so where, where right now does the Senate bill sit? Is it just, sta- it just, was it ever voted on, not voted on? We pulled it. You pulled it? The bill got pulled. Okay. The bill got pulled because we weren't sure we had the four votes that we needed. And the bill got pulled because we think we stand a better chance of getting the bill declared unconstitutional. Here's the problem. If that bill is declared unconstitutional, let me back up a step. Before we left the committee hearing that day, Mm -hmm. the chairman of the committee suggested that we get together with the other side the healthcare side, and try to make some form a compromise of compromise. Okay. The other side refused to meet with us because no one wants this bill declared unconstitutional, and the reasoning should be simple to see. If it's declared unconstitutional, then the immunity that they have it's gone. It's gone. And I guess the, that's the next question. So, I mean, to both of you, uh, when we talk about the constitutionality uh, of, the, uh, of, the, of the actual statute, what's the argument 
uh, on the unconstitutionality portion. I mean, I, I don't want to get too much into a con law class, but you mentioned, Bobby, you, you actually cited a section. I mean, is it is it just a, a, taking away Louisiana citizens' rights uh, without due process? Uh, what, what's what's the argument to be made? Well, if, if you can say that, I don't want to, you know, you know, leak I, out any kind of legal secrets. No, like, but but just no, the there's thought. No, there's no secret. Any anyone who can read the Constitution, anyone who could read Article Three, uh, Section Twelve, A, Three, mm-hmm. and Seven, says that the legislature cannot write a bill or any legislation that specifically grants immunity to a special group of individuals, period, under any circumstances whatsoever. So that's a very interesting argument, and I guess it's going to go all the way up, uh, and that's that's the intent, uh, I'm assuming. Uh, Carrie, have you, when, when I know you've got experience in telling clients no, have, uh, have you had, when you've had panels this year that have gone to or you've had claims that have gone to panel during this public emergency. Have there been any kind of issues at the panel level dealing with the panelists questioning the standard of the the review? Yes, many. Uh, For for the benefit of your your listening audience, for the benefit of your listening audience, uh, they need to know that that under the Louisiana Medical Malpractice Act, there are a number of protections that healthcare providers have, not the least of which is a cap, $500,000 cap plus medical expenses. The damage cap. And a medical review panel. So we are required as plaintiffs to present our case to a medical review panel as a prerequisite to going to suit in court. Now, um, I don't have to tell you, and I don't think it's going to be a surprise to many, that we lose about 90 to 95% of those panels, regardless of the merits of the case. But yes, in, in direct answer to your question, Conrad, what, what we are now faced with is there is a panel chair, and then there are three physicians or three health care providers on the panel, and the panel chair is faced with the issue of whether to instruct the panel that the standard is gross negligence. And there has been a bunch of litigation about that back and forth in, in the 24th and the Fifth Circuit, uh, and, and it's unsettled, I think, uh, there have there has been an opinion by the Fifth Circuit, and I don't know that it was very telling to any of us. I think it, they basically punted, for lack of a better term, on that issue. But but yes, there is a lot of there is a lot of dispute at the panel level about whether, in light of the Emergency Powers Act, mm-hmm. the panel chair is required under the law to tell the panelists that no longer is it did the doctor breach the standard of care. Did the doctor commit gross negligence? And of course, listen, we're already losing, plaintiffs are already losing 90 to 95% of the panels under the ordinary standard of negligence. I need not tell you what's going to happen to that number if the doctors have to decide whether the physician or healthcare provider was grossly negligent. And and Bobby's absolutely correct. My God, the, the, the professional ramifications of a healthcare provider to be found willfully or grossly negligent. I can't imagine what they might be. Well, let me ask both of you this question. If I went to a pool of physicians right now and told them about this immunity statute during COVID, how many of them would you think raise their hand and say, I know about that? (laughs) 
I'm, that's a good question. I mean, I mean, I, I, that, and that's what I'm asking you because I mean, I know as lawyers, you both know this inside and out. We all do. But but if I had to go to an orthopedic surgeon or a, a cardiac, any, anyone really, any any physician anywhere, whether it's a hospitalist, Bobby or or carry a specialist, and I would say, hey, did you know? Did you guys know, or you you doctors know, that for the last two years you could have done anything you want and you would be basically immune? immune. Yeah. Did y'all know that? How many do you think would actually acknowledge that? I think uh, uh, not a great number. Uh, I'll tell you this. Probably uh, a third. Uh, yeah. A third? You think I, a third? I would say a third. I'll tell you this. A hundred percent of those physicians that are actively in litigation would know about it. Oh, well, that's different. <laughs> that's I would agree a, with that. Yeah. Hopefully their attorneys would tell them. Yes, that's right. right. But but I'm sure there's a fair amount. Of, uh, Bobby's guess is probably right. It's about a third. It's less than 50% because it's just not so, on their radar. So, but, so let me ask you this. So, so, I mean, I get, I understand about victims' rights, and I, can under, and I, I know how passionate both of you are for your clients. My question is, is do you think the providers themselves somehow think like they're they're getting away with something over these last two years? In other words, do you think they're doctors that are going around saying, oh man, I got a free pass. I can kind of lower my standards or I can, you know, I don't have to worry as much. I mean, do you think that that is going on? No. 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 Okay. No. And, and I think Carrie and I both think the same way. I come from a family of health care providers. I know you might find that kind of weird. No, I, no. I'm I married have, to one. <laughs> I, I have. I know you are. I, I have a son that's a doctor. Right. I have a son that's a Navy nurse um, who's going to be a CRNA. I have a daughter who's a cardiac exercise physiologist. I have another daughter who does echocardiograms and vascular sonography. You have a lot of lineage in the healthcare system, that's I, for sure. I have a mother-in-law who's a nurse. Uh, my wife went to... Uh, um, Took our prerequisites in nursing. My sister-in-law is a nurse practitioner. I had no idea. Yeah. Um, so why am I doing plaintiff medical malpractice work? I don't. A lot of people might think that's a conflict, and I look at it the other way. I have a great deal of respect for the medical profession. I like to tell people I studied law for four years, but I've been studying medicine for the last forty-two. <laughs> Uh, I have more medical books than I have law books. I don't believe in my heart of hearts mm -hmm. that there's such a thing as a bad physician. I, I just don't. I think everybody makes mistakes. Yes. I yeah. make a mistake, but it doesn't cost someone their life. It doesn't cost them heartache for the rest of their life. If I make a mistake, I expect to pay for it. Why doesn't it work the other way around? That's the question I ask myself. It should. Okay? Uh, uh huh. But I've been doing this for a long time, Conrad, 42 years. I got two years of carry. Okay? You make a mistake, just own up to it. Don't. We punish lawyers when they make a mistake. I get a bar journal every two months, and I go to the back of the journal, and I you read the nota bene all the time. Mm -hmm. Okay, but it doesn't seem to be that way. Kerry's right on his numbers. We lose medical review panels. The exact number is ninety. Well, well, I will 
4.5% of the time. And let me just tell you this, and, 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 and I know you know this for sure, but if, if a doctor loses a, a med mal case, that doctor is reported not only to the NPDB, right, but also to the state board. And that goes on, that's on the record forever. So I, I get what you're saying, but I do believe that that's only if they lose or they pay a judgment. So, uh, you know, I think there is, and, the, and I know the state board, for example. And what are the ramifications of that, Conrad? Well, and that's a good question. I think, I think the board, and, 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 and I might actually reach out to their DOI, their director of investigations, Dr. Creswell, who I know very well. I know him too. And so see if he would comment on this. But, but, but basically the board, I think, is obligated to investigate when there's some, they, I know they're obligated to investigate on a complaint. But if they gather a, uh, a decision of a judgment, I don't know if they're obligated to investigate that. That's I'm not, I'm not 100% sure on that. What are the ramifications, though? I mean, well, they, 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 if there's a, like, for example, if there's a pattern, I mean, uh, and I'll defer to Dr. Questrell on this, but if there's a pattern, I know that they have, um, they have initially investigated and filed complaints against doctors uh, on, on incompetency and other things. I know they've done that. I've seen that. I've been on the other end of that. Yeah. Well, I, my, now, my, how often is that? I don't know. I can't speak to that. One of my big two things. Number one, I have I don't have any health care providers in my family, but I have very very many health right. providers health care providers who are dear friends of mine. And 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 I'm I like Bobby. I have the ultimate respect for the health care providers. I think the overwhelming majority of them are good, caring, decent, compassionate people. Um, the problem I've got is listen, I might be the best driver on the planet. And if I just have, and I never have an accident, but if I have one bad day when I blow a stop sign and kill somebody, I'm responsible. And the fact that I happen to be a good driver all the other time really doesn't matter. And I think that's analogous to this. As Bobby said, if I make a mistake as a lawyer, I'm going to be held accountable. Right. I'll be held accountable financially, and I'll be held accountable, very much could be held accountable by the Bar Association. Correct. So... Um, my, my concern about the medical profession, and I've spoken to doctors about this, mm-hmm. is I don't believe they have done a very good job of policing their own. And by that, what I mean is we as plaintiff practitioners, we see the same names over and over and over. You mean as defendants? Yes, same doctors over and over and over. And now, some of those cases, there's not demonstrable negligence. But when you see the bad outcomes systemically from the same health care providers time after time after time. And then you see that the Louisiana State Board of Medical Examiners and other investigating agencies have not done anything about that. And Conrad, you and I have discussed this. We have. And we have discussed the, the repeat offenders that we all know about. And, and they're well known in the malpractice community on the plaintiff and the defense side. And they're still cutting. They're still operating on people. And, and I, I fault the medical community for that. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, when a doctor, when I present a case to a medical review panel, and I know it's a good case, I screen my cases very, very hard. Mm-hmm. I don't take baloney because if I did, I'd go broke. It would be a, a bad right. business decision. But when I present a good case, a solid meritorious case to a medical review panel, and that panel just ignores the facts, ignores the medicine, and just says no breach. They're not helping the medical profession. They're enabling the bad doctors. 
And I fault them for that. Mm-hmm. Not only that, they're violating their oath. Sure they are. And it, that means nothing in, to a lot of people. But they take an oath. I mean, we're burdened with this medical review panel stuff, just like we're burdened with the cap of $500,000 that in today's dollars is worth $87,000. And we could talk about that another day. We could, we could, we could spend hours on that. You know, it was in 1973 when it was 1975. Five. There we go. I was close. $500,000 is now worth $87,000. Now I've, I've, I've heard about that. We could talk about that until (laughs) the cows come home, but well then, and, and let me just say this. And, and, and I know to Carrie's point, about policing their own. Yes. Um, I mean, I, I do a tremendous amount of peer review work uh, for hospital facilities, and I know uh, there's a lot of a there's a there's a veil over that. And the reason, uh, in terms of confidentiality at the state level, confidentiality at the federal immunity at the federal level, confidentiality at the state level um, for peer review, and, and that was to allow transparency, you know, to go back and forth between the physician and provider community to police their own. Um, I, I, I'll be candid with you. It's, it's a, it's a very difficult process <laughs> and I think it's, it, it's, it's facility dependent. In other words, who's the driver at the facility that's pushing the peer review process. You follow me? Cause I, I used to, I was um, a hearing officer. I've been a hearing officer about nine or 10, nine or 10 different peer review investigations at various hospitals on the Gulf South. And I could tell you, and that's over the last 10 years, it is very rare that you even get to that point. You follow me? I mean, I mean, if you ask a hospital how many peer review hearings they've had, I could tell you they probably would look in their, their hand and say, I could count on one hand in the last 10, 15 years how many we've had. And here's the thing about peer reviews, as you know, and a lot of people may not know this, we're not entitled as plaintiff attorneys to the results of the peer review. Right. But we are entitled to the evidence that's submitted for the peer review. For the credentialing application. For the credentialing application. And if there's a hearing for a peer review, the lawyers are entitled to the evidence that is submitted for the peer review. Not many people know that, but there are two cases out there that says that we can get... I like to read those cases because I'm not aware of that. I can give you those two cases. I like well, that. The facts, I learned something new today. Not well, many people are aware of that. Well, But the facts, the facts on the credentialing application that are submitted to the credentialing committee for the privileges, yes, I think that, that that's, un, that's settled I, jurisprudence. Maybe I think we're talking about two different things. Yes. If you have a peer review hearing yes. on an alleged malpractice incident mm-hmm. at a hospital, yes. and the physician submits and other hospital personnel submit material for that peer review hearing, Mm -hmm. the plaintiff attorney is entitled to the evidence that is submitted for the peer review. We're not entitled to result of the peer review. For the discussions. Right. For the session, but we're entitled to the evidence Uh, that is submitted for that peer review. And that's interesting. And what if that evidence though constitutes peer review material? I I guess you'd have to go through that, but I get like medical records or some timesheets or log sheets. And their position. In their, and the position? And the position I want to of, see the that defa- case. of the physician. Either way, the, my, my, my point, I, I want to see that case. Sure. Either way, the point the point I'm trying to tell both of you is that I know that peer review is a, is the process. I mean, I know they have M&M conferences, they have peer review at hospitals. Um, but I got to tell you, it is, I don't know if it's used as, as much 
and you know, it does it get to the hearing standpoint? In other words, how how far do the hospitals go? And I think it's 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 going to be hospital specific. Like who's who's the driver of, of that in terms of the uh, the medical executive committee? But we're getting into a whole different but area. None of that, that we, we are none of that helps us. No. So so let's no. come back down. So 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 Bobby, I know you talked about the constitutionality of the uh, of the statute, and I know you're you're challenging that right now. Can you tell us a little bit? Tell our listeners a little bit about the suit you filed and, sure. and where you expect it to go. Let me let me let me. If you don't mind, I'll get into a little bit of the specifics about the case. Sure. I, I have a client that um, her husband is a 60-year-old male who had your common everyday seven-level cervical fusion, both anterior and posterior. Seven-level? Seven-level. Wow. Jesus. Yeah. Wow. I say that tongue-in-cheek because... No one has seven levels. No one has seven levels. No, <laughs> no, one, has seven. no one has seven levels. I don't know who the doctor is, but I can guess. But anyway, um, go ahead. <laughs> he um it was a two-day surgery okay and uh obviously when you undergo such a surgery you get a lot of fluids like ten thousand milliliters right in order to get a lot of fluids you have to pull those fluids off before you discharge from the hospital and that takes a little while you can't do that in 24 hours mm-hmm. he was discharged from the hospital prematurely he was supposed to spend a week in the hospital and then a month in rehab he didn't. He spent 24 hours in the hospital. He was discharged from the hospital. And four days later, he showed up in the emergency room because the doctor who performed the surgery, and I'm going to leave names out, even though it's a matter of public record, he went to see um, the orthopedic surgeon who did this seven-level cervical fusion, uh-huh. and he had complaints of hallucinations and delusions. Um, for your listening audience, that means that he's got a fluid overload and he's probably got some brain swelling going on because okay. he has too much fluid. That's not in the record, of course. The day after he sees his orthopedic surgeon, he complains about being delusional and having hallucinations and the orthopedic surgeon says, go see your PCP, which he does. PCP says, you need to go to the emergency room. He goes to the emergency room. He sees an NP, because the emergency room physician doesn't have time to see him or doesn't want to see him. And the emergency room physician gives him what's called an isotonic solution of normal saline. That's 0.9% sodium. That's clearly the wrong medicine. Mm -hmm. He needs hypertonic saline because he's hyponatremia. Right. His sodium level is 118 millimoles per liter. Your normal saline level is 136 to 145. He is critically hyponatremic. This man belongs in a hospital on 3% saline, 100 milliliters at a time, slowly IV solution off, Blood tested, off and on, belongs in a hospital. What happened? What happened to him? No doubt about it. Thirty-six hours later, he's dead. They give him a bolus. They send him home. They don't check his blood. Thirty-six hours later, he's dead. It goes to panel. Mm-hmm. The panel finds that the emergency room physician is negligent under the general standard of care. Okay. And that negligence caused his death. 
That's what they said. So they found causation. Uh huh. Guess what they said when it came to gross negligence? He's not grossly negligent because he rendered some form of treatment, albeit minimal. No. It's not minimal treatment. It's the wrong treatment. Right. It's not, it's not even minimal. It's he killed him because what he did when he gave him the 0.9% normal saline, mm-hmm. he gave him, he increased the cellular, he gave him extracellular fluid. He caused his sodium level to go from 118 to 111. In other words, he made him worse. He killed him. When the EMS got to his house, 36 hours later, when he stopped breathing, his tongue, his throat was so swollen they couldn't even intubate him. They couldn't get a tube down his throat. So the panel says, he's negligent. That negligence killed him, caused his death is what they said. But no, that's not gross negligence. So now you filed a post-panel suit. I file a post-panel suit. In the post-panel suit, I allege that the statute was unconstitutional. That suit is pending in St. Mary Parish. It was, I mailed it in three days ago. It just got filed today. Oh, wow. Oh, so, okay. It's fresh. The ball is rolling. The timer's on. Okay. So. What do you anticipate? The bill, the Senate bill, 346, yeah. got pulled. Because we think now that we have a better chance of having that statute declared unconstitutional. This is apparently what they wanted, remember? Instead of compromising, they apparently want the statute declared unconstitutional. So none of the physicians now will have immunity if this statute is declared unconstitutional. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess we're going to have to find out, and and you know we're we're going to have to keep us uh, keep me and and I'll, and I'll keep the listeners aware of the status of the posture of this case because we're going to follow that as we move through this process on this particular issue. Uh, I think uh, I'm sorry for your client, Bobby, and I'm sorry that happened, but Thank I'm very you. interested from a legal standpoint as to where this is going to go, uh, and in terms of how now this is St. Mary's. Is that what is that fir- what circuit is that third circuit? Oh, I see. Why. Okay, interesting circuit. So yes. uh, we'll see where we'll see where that goes, and we'll keep an eye on that. And 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 Carrie, I guess to 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 now I know you've come across now. Bobby has a case now. Did you come across any cases that you thought about possibly challenging uh, in, in terms of the, the same ticking the same road? I mean, are we are we doing? Oh, you thought. Let me add one other thing yeah. for you, Jeff. Yeah, Carrie. Yes. The interesting thing is with this my case. Yes. The treatment started before the governor issued his state of emergency. It started oh. on February the fourth. So we so we have we have but treatment the, that spans both. But, but the surgery actually was post post issuance of the order. 11th, oh wow! Okay. And the death, of course, was post. Well, that's really going to present an interesting issue because now you have this overlapping care. And of course, I'm alleging that the surgery was absolutely unnecessary, but. You right, know, they're going to say it was necessary because he went into the physician sure. with tingling in his hands. We're going to have to follow that and see where that goes. Keep us surprised of that, or keep me surprised, and I'll and I'll keep our listeners surprised as well. I think I might keep the whole state of Louisiana. I think you will, <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> Carrie, do you do you have any um, situations where you thought this might be a good case that you can share? And if not, you, I understand. I, I don't want to do any privacy issues, but but what did you come across some issues where you thought mm, this might be something that I want to consider 
uh, to challenge the constitutionality of the statute? Well, Conrad, there are a couple of, couple of things that go into that question. Number one is um, the Lejeune case, which I think Bobby referenced early on. Or you the Katrina case, yes. The, the Katrina case was a case where it was dismissed on motion practice because the plaintiff had lost the panel and, and, and the, the plaintiff was unable to procure a, an expert who was, excuse me, prepared to say gross negligence. Right. So the Fifth Circuit held that that it was appropriate. And Lejeune, just for our listeners, was a case that was brought post Katrina that was in uh, that dealt with a care of a patient who ultimately found out they had a retained sponge. Yes. And so clearly, all of us would say that's gross negligence. That's gross. And so, and the plaintiff went and filed suit, and they uh, they cited the immunity statute, and it got kicked out because the plaintiff procedurally, like you said, had no expert to to verify that. Correct. But, but let me follow up on something Bobby said, which yes. I think is very, very important uh-huh. for your uh, listening audience to know. Bobby's right. There are fewer and fewer of us. I, I, that is plaintiff medical malpractice lawyers right. in the business. We all know each other. I'm, everybody knows each other. It's a very small community, plaintiff and defense. We mm-hmm. deal with each other every day. And, and the reason our numbers are dwindling is because the cost, mm-hmm. the difficulty, the time that is required to expend on a case, to do justice to the case, to be successful, is is incredible. And that was before the Emergency Powers Act, the gross negligence thing. So so what what the bottom line is, is that the, the number of cases I took before the Emergency Powers Act was small. Right. I, I, I tell my doctor friends all the time, I'm your best friend. They said, what are you talking about? I'm, you're my best friend. All you do is sue doctors. I said, what you don't know is the 90% of the cases that I have prevented from going to claim because I have discouraged the plaintiff right. from filing it where your name could have appeared on a claim and you never knew about and it. And you know, and, and let me just real quick, and, and I don't want to interrupt you up your train of thought here, but let me ask you this. So I, I, te- well, I teach... Um, I talk to residents all the time, all the time during the year. I talk to LSU, I talk to Tulane residents, different pools. And, and a lot of times we have medical malpractice seminars, carry. And, and one of the things they ask me is, well, how do we avoid getting sued? And the one thing I tell them is that communication. A hundred percent. Communication. I said, if you would treat these patients like they were your family members in terms of what they want to know and take the time, I said, even on an adverse outcome, you're not going to get sued. Would y'all agree with that? A hundred percent. Let me tell you, and I'll go a step further, a step further than that. It's not just communication. Right. That's that. It is listening. 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 Y'all would both agree doctors, with that? Doctors have a unique inability sometimes to listen because they believe that they're the only ones that have anything of import to say. But oftentimes the patient has a lot to say that can be helpful in the treatment of the patient. Interesting. So listening skills for a physician are something that can always be improved upon. Conrad, I'm like you. I lecture to nurses, I lecture yeah. to residents, I lecture to doctors right. all the time. LSU, Tulane, I even go out of state and I do it. And I tell them the same thing. You can be, I, I tell doctors this all the time. I said, you know, your best friend are the nurses in the hospital. They can either be your best friend or your right. worst enemy. And they look at me like I'm crazy. <laughs> so I'm telling you, they can be your best friend or your worst enemy. I said, if you don't record stuff properly, that'll get you in trouble. Mm-hmm. If, like Kerry said, if you don't listen, they know it. The mm-hmm. patient knows it. That's true. And they will be insulted 
I cannot tell you how many times patient uh, clients have come to me and said he just didn't hear and he wasn't interested in what I had to say. Right, right. That's so true. So, gentlemen, I, I want to first off. I want to first thank you both for coming to the studio today. It's been eye-opening, and and I'm sure our listeners would really attest to what they've learned today. I think this is a very important issue. Uh, any final thoughts that you want to leave the listeners with respect to this emergency order, the general state of affairs in terms of 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 medical malpractice on the plaintiff side? Is there anything you want to leave with them uh, today as we sit here on this very issue? If you feel strongly about it, talk to your representative, talk to your senator. It, it's just not right that a group of people are immune from liability. Now, physicians change people's lives for the good and the bad. I mean, and the only people who can help you right now are your legislators and your, and your senators. Understood. We can't do it all. I mean, we can't. And again, we, we take no position here. So, but I appreciate that, Bobby. We're gonna have we're gonna have. Uh, I, I plan on having the other side and 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 seeing how they feel. But I'm glad. I know you feel strongly about this, Carrie. Any final thoughts? Yes, I would sum it up, Conrad, by saying this: What the Emergency Powers Act effectively did to plaintiff malpractice victims, medical malpractice victims, it it made it from going from a difficult task to an impossible task. And that is the net effect of this entire thing. And that pretty much sums it up. And that is, as Bobby said, wrong. Not a little wrong, but a lot wrong. Interesting. Well, gentlemen, I really appreciate you guys coming on the show today. I want to thank you very much for your insight and your input. And everyone, uh, do us a favor. Please feel free to send us an email at Shahardi Sherman, uh, our Health Law Talk. I think we have it at podcast. Uh, email address. So if you have any questions or comments about today's podcast, uh, go ahead and send us an email. And if you want to hear anything, uh, any topic-wise on the podcast, go ahead and send us an email and we'll happily respond. Again, thank you for another outtake on Shahardi Sherman Williams Health Law Talks. Conrad Meyer signing out until the next episode. Everyone have a great day. Thanks for listening to this episode of Health Law Talk presented by Shahardi Sherman Williams. Please be sure to subscribe to our channel. Make sure to give us that five-star rating and share with your friends. Shahardi Sherman Williams is providing this podcast as a public service. This podcast is for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal advice, nor does this podcast establish an attorney-client relationship. Reference to any specific product or entity does not count as an endorsement or recommendation by Shahardi Sherman Williams. The views expressed by guests on the show are their own and their appearance does not imply an endorsement of them or their entity that they represent. Remember, please consult an attorney for your specific legal issues.